Welcome to the Love Reaching Community's Sermon of the Week. For more information pertaining to the life of the church, please visit our website at lrcchurch.co.za. All right, good morning. You still have to give me something to work with, people. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> oh. Let's get settled in first. Where are we at the moment? Hebrews, that's right. And let's hope we have some fun this morning. Hey, we are at the facility. We are the church. There we go. <laughs> so I, I'm not sure whether the golf day will still carry on on that day. It might just be postponed. Let me just say that before we carry on. And I'm one-handedly opening a bottle of water. It's amazing. Look at that skill. Alright, Lord, we ask you to speak to us through your word this morning. I, I know that you speak and that you are ever speaking. You are not a silent, quiet God, but I ask you today to speak to your children through me. Without you, Lord, there is no hope of me even bringing anything of life to your people. So we ask you to breathe on your word, Lord, and make it alive in Jesus' name. Amen. So Hebrews 4 is where we are at. I don't know if that's good English, but that's where we are. Quick recap. Hebrews, written to the church of Hebrews, the Jews, around about 50 to 60 AD. We don't know who the author is, but according to Reverend uh, Raja, Brandon Raja, he told us so, it's Paul. But we're still not sure. But according to him, it's Paul. It's about Jesus being greater than the law, than Moses, than the covenant, than the high priest, Jesus, everything Jesus. It's about a father of a figure writing to a church saying, do not slip back. Do not add to. Just stay the course. I love Hebrews 1 verse 3. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. That's Jesus. Can you imagine if the entire church of God on earth grasped Jesus in that way? The exact imprint, the glory, the radiance, the preeminent one. Imagine, let's bring it a bit home, if we grasp that and we live up to that knowing that it is him, Jesus. Jesus, Jesus, our God and our King. And we went through the su supremacy of God's Son, 
we went through not neglecting salvation and then Brandon brought us the message on Jesus greater than Moses and what was his takeaway? God, show us your ways. Your way, God. Not ours, your way. This morning, it is my privilege to bring Hebrews 4. found it difficult because it doesn't start with a heading that summarizes the chapter. <laughs> and there are many facets in here. But I think eventually God distilled and percolated something in my heart. Let's read it together. Shall we do that? Everybody have an ESV? There we go. We do. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it, reach rest. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. Good case for unity. God's message doesn't benefit us if we are not unified in Jesus Christ. For we who have believed enter that rest, as he said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world, for he has somewhere spoken on the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in the passage he said, but they shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again he appoints a certain day, today, saying through David, so long afterwards, in the words already quoted, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God, for whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works, as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest, so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. And then this beautiful verse, we so often quote, and is so amazing and relevant. For the word of God is living and active. It is sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the dividing of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. It wraps up with Jesus, the great high priest. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Probably the most telling verse in Hebrews talking about the intent of the book, approaching God. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Father, we pray that you bless your word. We do not take for granted that we get to freely read it, consume it, talk about it, digest it, ingest it. 
And Father, we don't take for granted that, that, that we will grow. And we want to apply ourselves to let it strengthen us, convict us, enlighten us, free us, restore us as the living word. In Jesus' name. So, I don't know about you, but there's a lot of rest, that rest, the rest, rest in the first couple of verses. Yeah? But there are three distinct things that I felt God highlight to me in this chapter. The first was rest. The second one was the word. And the third one was high priest. I thought we're going to park around those three ideas, if that's okay with you. I ask myself two questions. What do I learn about approaching God in this chapter? And the second question, is there possibly a hidden or a deeper subtext or a meaning that I should be reading that I'm missing just because of not dwelling on it, not thinking upon it, not meditating on it? So we're going through rest, the word of God, and high priest with those two questions in mind. Is that all right? Some of you say yes. Some of you say, please say yes. There we go. Thank you, Reuben. <clears throat> rest, verses 1 to verse 11. And God clearly speaks here of different types of rest. Have you picked up on that? Let me help you out quickly. He definitely refers to what happened with creation. Remember it says, and there was something written that says God rested on the seventh day. Yeah, it's, it's, it's Genesis. It's the beginning. In the beginning, there was day one, day two, day three, day four, day five, day six, day seven, God rested. Definitely speaks of that. Another thing he speaks of is, is the Exodus story. What happened in the Exodus story? God said, they will not enter my rest. Why not? Because they walked around grumbling. Lack of faith. Oh, woe to us. The God of all creation just saved us and liberated us from slavery. Poor us. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Oh, Lord, you've redeemed me and restored me, but poor me. Oh, God, if I could just have another car, another house, another money, another, another. Poor me. But he definitely speaks about that story. He refers to Joshua. Who was the one who eventually took the Israelites into the promised land? Joshua. What did they do when they got to the promised land? They entered into a season of rest after a season of war. But then there's definitely something else that's been spoken of here in rest. Jesus Christ coming to die for you and I, giving us Eternal rest. Not so. You clever folk, you also picked up on that, hey? Yeah. Now this rest is a little bit more than just sitting, feet up, packet of lays, watching entire season of your favorite series. You don't even hear the kids or the cars, you, you're just resting. 
It's a little bit more than that. The first word that it, that it says, the, the, the type of the word. So, you know, in English we go, I walk, I walked, I walking. You know, you, you know there are different types of the word. There's, there's, there's rest. And the first rest is to abide, to be in. And then the other form of this word is to, uh, let me write, read, I think it's settled. At peace, settled. Now the way it made sense to me is um, <clears throat> I'm a little bit of an A-type personality. And when I need to process something, I start moving things around. And Trevor comes to me and he says, are you... Is there something going on? I'm like, no, I'm just processing. The people come to the offices and they don't even know where, where they are because I've moved couches and chairs. But that's how I, 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 and eventually when it's done, I'm settled. Anybody else have habits like that? Nobody else. Has anybody crochet? There we go. Is it not the same thing? You work at that pattern. Fishing, come on. There's a busyness before there's a settling, isn't there? Though you pack that bucky, come on, don't lie. You do. And when you start to work and you do, um, you're a carpenter, there is, is graft that happens. And then there's a, ah, oh, now I'm in the groove. Everything is just fine. I reach and I've got my plane now. I go and there's my saw. And, it, there's a, there's a, and, and, and that's also what this thing is talking about. That word speaks about there is a busyness and there is a settledness in the busyness because there is peace. You are familiar with it. it. It's how it happens. Does it make sense? Genesis, I said Moses and Joshua up to the New Testament and then Jesus, the New Testament rest that he refers to here. And at first I thought, well, what does this teach me about approaching God? And I want to say that if we have that type of rest, we're approaching God in peace amidst the storm. In the peace that we can go to our God and, and our dad and say, amidst <coughs> certain reports in the world, there is peace in my heart. I am at rest. I know that there are dangers. I know that there are cautionary things I need to do. I've never used so much sanitizer in my life. God, will I have any epidermis left? Will my skin survive? But I am at peace with my God. I am at peace. Have you ever tried to approach a person when they are in that phase of getting ready for the rest? <laughs> yeah, those that work with me, I'm like, walk with me. <laughs> Do I give my full attention while I'm moving couches? No. Do I hear what you say? Maybe peripherally, maybe superficially, but I don't hear you. Do you feel heard? No. Until I am at rest. I can give my full attention and my full focus. 
The Hebrew writer, for me, the deeper context and the subtext that we need to read here, what we need to learn here, is that for us to approach God in peace means that we need to be settled in ourselves. I go and I look at what happened in Genesis and what did God say? Let us make man in our image. And then what happens with Moses and Joshua? He says, I'm going to make myself a nation, a people. And what does Jesus come and do? And he says, I'm the firstborn of many sons and daughters. If we understand the rest, it means that we are at peace, that we are in the image of God, that we are his people for his purposes, and we know that we are in relationship with him. We are sons and daughters of the Most High. And then we enter his peace, and we are in his rest. How do I, what do I learn and how do I approach God? I approach him with peace. And the second question that I asked, is there a deeper hidden one? <laughs> the plans and the purposes and the design of God will shape us into a season of rest despite the busyness. The second thing that I read in verse 12 and 13 is this amazing scripture that we quote so often. For the word of God is living and it is active. And it is so relevant now. It is sharper than a two-edged sword, piercing to the dividing division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. And what do we all say when we do that? We take the Bible and we say, the word of God is living and active. We know that, right? And then I take a scripture and I quote it to Brandon. And I say, he will never leave you. He will never forsake you. This is the double-edged sword of the Lord. Let him liberate you. Because the word of God is living and active. And it's right. And this morning, what did we declare over the nations? There were many children and their children and their children and a thousand generations. It's living and it is active. And we read here and we we see that it says that the enemy will not conquer us, but we will conquer the enemy because we are the head and we are not the tail. And it is relevant and it is living and it is active. And for some of us, we we read and we say that he will pour new wine in new wineskins and it is relevant. And he's going to say, you are my son, and you are my son, and you are my daughter, and with you I'm well pleased. And it is living, and it is active. It is the word of God. Not so. Yes. That is how we steal ourselves. That is how we remove the calluses, and the tumors, and the growths of the world. We cut it out with the sword. We cut it out with the scalpel. We remove it with the sharp word of the Lord. It brings conviction. It tells me I shouldn't do what I am doing. It, it matures me. It grows me. It tells me how I should act towards you and act towards God. It tells me what I should be doing, not just what I shouldn't be doing. Miracle signs, wonders. It's living and active, the word. So for me, the first one with how I have to approach God that I learn from the word in this chapter is that I should approach him with a certain degree of conviction that this is his word. It should, this word should bring conviction in my heart about how I should do it. 
the road of sanctification, the journey of sanctification. What pleases him? What brings his joy? But as I said, I'm going to look at these things through the deeper thing, the, 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 the question B that I asked myself. What is the deeper meaning that there is? And I find myself perplexed because did they have this in 50 and 60 AD? Did they have a beautifully leather-bound ESV Bible? What did those poor people do? What did they shove in the air like I just did? Did they take the scrolls from the temple and say, <laughs> today I'm taking Isaiah, I'm going to shove it in the air. It's the word of the Lord. What did they do? Did they have little, little scrolls everywhere that they sold in the temple courts that they called daily bread? You know those little things that you pull out and it says, today scripture verse is this. Did they have that? So what is this Hebrew writer referring to? What did he call upon them to do? What did he remind them about? Yes, it's possible that some of them knew the Torah and were taught the law as they sat in the temple. And some of them were learning to be rabbis and leaders and sat with their fathers and heard that Isaiah the prophet spoke this and this and this and Jeremiah said this and Daniel promised us liberation and this and they had that part of the word of God because the Old Testament and the New Testament is the word, isn't it? But what more? Did he refer to? Because nowhere in the old scrolls did it say that on this day the Messiah will be crucified for your sins, but he will not stay dead. He will live again on the third day and he will ascend to heaven after that to be seated in glory and majesty for all eternity. That is what we have in the New Testament, but they didn't have it. What was he referring to? Because that was the very basis of the church that they were established in. I'm so glad you asked that question. For me, the answer to my second question about the word of God is that the truth of God, the truth of who he is, the truth that he is to me, is sharp. <laughs> it's a double-edged sword. And until this recorded book that was publicized, publicized, publicized at some point before this can have any effect. I need to know that Jesus as the spoken word is alive in me. He is the word of God. He is the very incarnate word of God. John says it to us. Unfortunately, this church didn't have the book of John. It was only penned AD 80. But this Hebrew writer has grasped it, that no matter how many words you read until you get to that word of God, which is Jesus Christ, and that becomes living in you, there is no hope. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. The second thing is if we do not live in Jesus Christ as the word that became flesh, <laughs> we will miss it no matter how much of this we know. And then we can never approach him with any degree 
of conviction upon promise. Eternal word of God. The wonder of it is when you start to see that Jesus is the word of God, no matter how many times you read one verse, you can get a myriad of interpretations and revelation about Jesus, the Son, God the Father, and the precious Holy Spirit. You will for all eternity get it if Jesus is the revelation word to you. The third thing that's mentioned in this chapter is the great high priest. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast to our confession. Verse 14 to verse 16 that speak about the high priest. Now the interesting thing about the high priest is high priest with the part of the, the, the Levites and the priestly thing that came, they were direct descendants from the line of Aaron. Thank you, yes? You want to know? Aaron was the brother of Moses. Yes, you guys are on point today with your questions so leading. It's amazing. The one became the representative of the Messiah and the other one became the lineage of the priest, almost like Jesus and John. Not so. Hey. But now the high priest with those guys that on Yom Kippur, the day of atonement, would go into the Holy of Holies that was separated by a curtain, a veil, a thick one. It was so thick that it couldn't even move. It was thick. Day of atonement. For those that follow the Jewish calendar this year, it will be around about 27, 28th of September. Yom Kippur, the day of atonement. But they were the dudes that were consecrated and set apart and they would go into, behind the curtain, into the Holy of Holies and they would sprinkle blood for the atonement of the people of Israel. Is my history still okay? Am I any scholars here that want to? Yeah, I'm cool, I'm there. But what would happen with this priest? Before they would go in, they would themselves get sprinkled with the blood of the animal sacrifice. was dipped in his soap or whatever those things were and it sprinkled on him and then he went in and he would sprinkle it on behalf of the people and say please God please forgive them forgive them and what would happen if this person wasn't as holy as he was supposed to be struck dead and they had a little rope tied around his leg with some bells and they would just pull him out and say ach sis doch ne next time. Have you ever thought that afterwards there must have been a whole bunch of them lined up in case, in case um, Malachi or what Mordecai, Mordecai died, then it's you. Come, Malachi, it's you. And then, ah, no, sorry, you didn't make it. Eli, come. Can you imagine the fear that they lived with? Can you imagine if they ever knew whether they had enough confession and repentance and, and, and mentioned everything that they did wrong? The absolute fear that they approach this thing with. And what happens to Jesus? Unlike the high priest dressed up in his beautiful outfit, 
made of fine linen and unblemished stuff with precious stones in the ephod and a solid piece of gold inscribed with promises from the Lord and a turban and beautiful cloak. Unlike that high priest that goes in with somebody else's or something else's blood sprinkled on them. Unlike that high priest, our Savior goes and he gets beaten and, and bruised and spattered with his own blood. That he was so beaten that you could see the bone. That his, his hair was pulled out with pieces of his flesh. His beard was pulled out. Crown of thorn with the blood run across his face. Doused in his own blood. So weak that he could enter into the holy of holies for us. Unlike the high priest who took a poor defenseless animal and spattered them and, and covered themselves with the blood so they could cover us with the blood, he takes and he says, take my blood, I'll cover myself with my own blood and I will pour it out for you so that you can be saved and you can have access to the holy of holies. And then you ask yourself, is it a surprise that that thick curtain supernaturally tore from, from top to bottom in half when such a great sacrifice by the creator of the world is poured out on you and me as undeserving as we are? And the entire universe stands still and behold the lamb. And it goes dark because there is freedom for us, but there has been death to create a God himself. Is it any surprise, if you think about it, that nature had to revolt against the slaughter of their beloved creator? And the first thing what we learn about approaching God through this portion of the text is that we can approach him with confidence like it says in verse 16. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. You know this confidence doesn't mean first go and sort yourself out and get yourself clean. It says the blood has been poured out, recognize it and enter into his presence. Today do not harden your heart. Do not waste a single moment. Enter in now. But the second thing that this speaks of that we cannot miss, the deeper subtext, is that the presence of our God is accessible for all of us for all eternity. The high priest, it's sorted. It is sorted. You and I have been covered by the blood of the Lamb for the appeasing of the wrath of God. We read about the rest of God in this chapter, which means we approach God with a peace once we have settled in what we need to do that he has called us to. We access his purpose, his plan, his design for our lives, which gives us the rest, which allows us to enter his presence and approach him in peace. We have his word, which gives us conviction 
But more than that, the truth of God, the very nature of Jesus Christ, the essence of the word become flesh to us. The third thing is we approach him with confidence because we have been covered by the blood of the Lamb. It is not a charismatic Pentecostal saying to say plead the blood of the Lamb. It is an eternal truth that his blood was poured out for you and me. And therefore, we go with confidence into his presence. But also, therefore, we have access to the presence of God. We approach him. We allow him. He allows us. A.W. Tozer, I quoted it in, I think, the first chapter I preached on Hebrews. It says, Jesus is not one of many ways to approach God, nor is he the best of several ways. He is the only way. There's a world out there that needs to hear this. There is a world out there that needs to know that Jesus is the only way, now more than ever. I pray that you'll be able to take something from today's message and apply it to the situation that's out there, that people will know that they can be in the peace at rest with God, that there is a solution to it all through the word, which is Jesus Christ, and that they will know that there is nothing to be fearful of because we hope in Christ, and even if we die, we gain. May we as a people rise up and be pillars of hope to a nation and a community out there. Father, we thank you for your word. I thank you that I have the privilege of bringing it to your children, Father. I pray that your living stones will be edified, encouraged, exhorted, built up with the reading of the scripture in their midst. In Jesus' name, amen. Welcome to the Love Reaching Community's Sermon of the Week. For more information pertaining to the life of the church, please visit our website at lrcchurch.co.za. 